0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Stephanie Scott on her debut novel, What's left of me is yours. Stephanie Scott is a Singaporean and British writer who was born and raised in Southeast Asia. She read English literature at York and Cambridge and holds an MST in creative writing from Oxford. And she won a BAJS Toshiba studentship for her anthropological work on her novel, What's Left of Me is Yours, which is what we're going to be talking about today, and has been made a member of the British Japanese Law Association as a result of her research in this novel. The novel was a New York Times editor's pick and an Observer Best Debut of 2020. It was recently out in paperback. Stephanie, welcome to Little Atoms.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
1: I would normally ask you how you would describe the novel at the beginning of the interview, but I think instead we should talk about this novel was based on a real-life case, wasn't it, that you found out
0: Yes, I would say I would say more inspired by mm. uh, than based on, um, simply because I took the original case as inspiration and then departed from it. In that, you know, I chain I created fictional characters and created different backgrounds and histories and identities for them. So the the people described in the novel don't really resemble the people in the real case. But that being said, the I suppose the core relationships. Um, within the real case, are very much drawn out in the novel. Um, And so that case was a murder that occurred in Tokyo in 2010 and was covered by the Asia editor of The Times, Richard Lloyd Parry. I read Richard's articles on the case. What happened is that Japan has an at-fault divorce system. So if you wish to divorce your spouse, you can hire someone to seduce them and provide you with grounds for divorce, or at least an upper hand in the proceedings. And what had occurred in the original case was that a husband had hired an agent to seduce his wife, but the agent had fallen in love with his target. And she in turn fell in love with him. But when she found out the role he'd played in the breakdown of her marriage, she tried to leave him and he killed her. And what struck me, I think, about the case, he was swiftly arrested. And during his confession to the police detectives, he said, but I loved her and I love her still. And he claimed that he couldn't live without her and that he'd been trapped by all the lies he'd been forced to tell in the course of their relationship. And I was newly married at the time when I read this. And, you know, I wondered if what he said could possibly be true. Could you love someone and kill them? Because, you know, the immediate answer is is no. (laughs) And love in its ideal form is selfless. But then I started to think of Tolstoy and his idea of the fact that there are perhaps as many different kinds of love as there are people And I sort of became very fascinated by what love means to each of us and how one's survival and happiness can hinge on another person. And I felt compelled to explore how we love and what we're capable of doing to each other for love. And so that's really where the novel began. And we have a, you know, we have a husband, we have a, what could I say, a marriage breakup agent, we have a target Wife. And then we also have a daughter, Sumiko, who grows up never knowing how her mother died. So it's a dual timeline, really, between the love story in the past and Sumiko in the future. She's a newly qualified lawyer and she effectively goes back in time and finds out what happens or what truly, truly happened.
1: And you mentioned uh, a few ways in which you've fictionalized the story. One of the ways you didn't mention is that the time in which the novel is set is, it's only slightly different, but it's different. Um, and I wanted to talk about why you why you chose to do that.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. That's a that's a great point. Um, So yes, I moved the instead of having the love story in 20 around 2010, when when the real case took place, um, I've moved it back into the 80s and 90s, largely for personal reasons, actually. I'm from Singapore. And, uh, you know, that's where I grew up, my Indian family and my British family have been there for several generations, actually. But Singapore in the 90s, to me, for Several sort of similarities to Tokyo in the 90s, and I was quite drawn to those parallels the similarities, you know, that I had experienced growing up there and that my Japanese friends had experienced the schooling systems and the, I suppose, the (sighs) tuition, and just there were a number of things that resonated with me. I really loved Tokyo and Japan in that period as well, and I also wanted to step back from social media and. Um, just focus in on the people themselves, um, and there's a great deal of photography in the book and I'm fascinated by photography and film. and both of my main characters, Rina, the wife who was seduced and murdered at, and um, Kaitaro, the SSA agent, they are both at heart photographers. and so that period just really spoke to me. It's also it was leading up to the you know economic bubble and and crash um of the early 90s and I was I'm quite interested in cycles of human behavior and cycles of human greed and and how these manifest in the economy and are very relevant today so the parallels between that period and ours now also spoke to me so that's that's why I moved it moved it back in time and then the present day narrative is present day.
1: This book has been you've been writing this book for a long time and you know not least because of the um the depth of the research that's gone involved in it. And I'm absolutely sure this is the first time that I have ever described research for a novel as anthropological work, as I just did in the introduction. And so tell us something of the research. Where did you start?
0: Well, I started actually with Richard Lloyd Parry. Um, I flew out to Tokyo to meet with him and he was very kind and shared his articles and coverage of the original case with me. And then from that point on, I started to do the work that um, gained me the BHAS Toshiba studentship, which was fundamentally on the role of women in modern Japan and um, the evolution of feminism. Um, And I started to spend, so this novel has been 10 years in the making. So from that point um I began to I was you know awarded grants which helped start my research and I spent a lot of time in Tokyo you know looking at the position of women in modern Japanese society but also working extensively with um lawyers and uh, defense attorneys and prosecutors there and also Japanese prosecutors seconded to the Japanese embassy back in the UK and so i simultaneously started to look into japanese law as well i think those were the the two main prongs of my work and i mean obviously it's a mother daughter story and i think with the, we you know with increasing rates of femicide and violence against asian women what i really wanted to do was challenge the way victims are perceived in the press. Um, I think so often murder victims can become defined by their deaths you know by the crimes that led to their deaths and people don't tend to focus on their lives and the people they were um, and so I really wanted to address that but also in depicting a mother-daughter relationship I you know I became fascinated in by the way that um, the position of women can evolve over decades. Japan is still quite a patriarchal society. So despite the equal employment opportunity law in 1985, you know, it's still believed that a woman's role is primarily in home and that her focus should be on marriage and children. And there's tremendous pressure to conform. And I suppose this tension between societal expectation and personal desire was a great gift for me when writing the novel. And uh, in looking at women sort of across generations trying to forge their own paths, I was able to sort of investigate the difference between the roles that we are often expected to inhabit and the people we really want to be. And also that idea of the way in which mothers and daughters, as they age and evolve, can come to see themselves in each other and that maternal bond. I wasn't pregnant when I wrote the novel, I'm (laughs) heavily pregnant now. But I think um, motherhood is is something that has always fascinated me. So that was the feminist angle that I took. And then on the the legal side, there's just this, I I thought, you know, if I was going to set the novel in Japan and, and be true to the original case, which I really wanted to do, then I would have to depict the law in some detail. And that in itself is fascinating. There's no joint custody, you know, victims previously, I mean, they're still known as forgotten parties, but they could have, they were cut out of uh, legal procedures and events and really kept away from any information and encouraged to move on with their lives. And this is very much what happens to Simiko's family. And, you know, it's evolved into a different situation now. But Simico, as a young lawyer, you know, experiences that. And all of she learns, I think there's this great contrast between her personal experience in exploring the case and what happened to her mother, and and the repercussions this would have had for her family, for her grandfather who raises her, for her father, and then to how, and then a professional aspect of the law as she practices it and the flaws within it. So there was that aspect as well that was incredibly interesting.
1: The book really goes in depth into the ways in which. Japanese law differs from, you know, law that we might be more familiar with, like UK law or American law, in terms of, you know, various areas, be it like, you know, marriage and divorce, um, child custody, even murder trials and the way that defence and prosecutors operate and the way that they're, they're, the family and witnesses are treated in terms of their position, you know, the forgotten party element.
0: It, it does to an extent. I mean, in that it has these very distinctive features. And I also look at love in the law because mm-hmm. love... It's fascinating. And there are several books that have been written about this, so I won't go into huge detail, but the type of love that is deemed to have been manifested in the crime can affect sentencing. Um, And so that was really fascinating to me too. But whilst there are these distinctive features that Um, you know, that one would think are specific to Japan, you know, I would actually point out that it's more about the similarities that exist throughout our legal systems. You know, the idea that these are man-made, living, breathing systems that we've created to protect ourselves and how, perhaps because they are man-made, you know, flawed in a sense. So I was very much channeling the secret barrister in that. And I would also say that, you know, Japanese law, um, particularly since the Second World War and the American occupation, you know, there are huge parts of it that are based on the American system. Um, There are French and German aspects to it as well. There's, you know, indigenous Japanese law still there and there's Chinese characteristics. So it's actually a very interestingly global system that Bears a lot of similarities, and I think at fault divorce systems. I mean, we have one in the UK. There, it exists in parts of America. You know, I think these at-fault divorce systems also keep coming up. What was interesting to me was that they kept coming up in popular culture. So the French write romantic comedies about them, and so do the Italians. There are some notorious Italian divorce films. Evelyn Wall writes about hotel divorces in the 1930s. So, you know, it is told through a prism of Japanese history and culture, but the book also reaches out to the similarities around the world and to the issues that affect us all.
1: You're yeah, to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Stephanie Scott, and we're talking about her novel, What's Left of Me is Yours. And Stephanie, let's take a closer look at some of the characters then in the second half. And, and as we do, we'll look at some of the other ideas and issues that are in the book that affect those characters. And so, um, yes, yeah, Samiko, who is the book, is, is basically split into first person narration sections by Samiko as an adult, as a, you know, a young lawyer, a law student investigating what's happened to her mother in the past and then, and then sections from multiple perspectives in the past and also with Samiko as, as a child. But let's, let's talk about Samiko that we meet as an adult, as the narrator. Tell us more about who she is. She's basically been brought up, told a lie about her family background.
0: Yes, so Simiko is seven when her mother is is murdered, and she's she's raised by her maternal grandfather. and um, in in Japan, there is only sole custody. So in the divorce um, between her mother and father, her mother would have would have been granted sole custody. Um, and this passes to her grandfather. Um, so she's really raised by him, and uh, he's a lawyer and he encourages her to become one too. You know, he reads to her, he reads everything to her. There are so many sort of global literary in- um, influences. But she becomes a lawyer and um, she grows up never truly knowing how her mother died. She's told it was in a car crash um, and that her mother was driving and, and that no one else was hurt. But then as she qualifies her grandfather is away she receives a phone call from the prison service which mentions her mother and also a man she's she's never heard of and uh, a, a prison sentence that he is serving and she is basically compelled to go in search of the truth and she can't possibly ask her grandfather at this point because he's lied to her for so many years and he I mean Yoshi her grandfather is is probably one of my favourite characters, but he's also very, very complicated. You know, he introduces this idea of, you know, when is lying the best thing? When does it serve your needs uh, rather than, you know, the needs of the person who's being lied to? Um, And so he raises all of those questions, but he's actually quite a beloved paternal figure. He just makes a series of wrong choices. And Simiko has to grapple with these and she has to find out what happened to her mother. And uh, she discovers that there was an affair and... It's really a it's both a who done it, um, but also a why done it.
1: And we talked about you know we talked about in the first half about differences or similarities in Japanese law, but one of the things we get to see through Sumiko's present day story is how law in Japan has changed and has evolved over the years.
0: Yes, very much so. So when um, when her mother dies, her father would have been um, I suppose a forgotten party in the traditional sense. He would have been kept um, away from court proceedings, and then the emphasis was very much on protecting the rights of the perpetrator of the crime, so he wouldn't have been told the dates of the trial or even the outcome of sentencing or anything like that. And the only reason he does get hold of this information is because he is a lawyer and is able to s- circumnavigate the system. And by Simico's time, this has changed rapidly. There's been a tremendous backlash against the original system, and you know now you can actually hire a a lawyer to represent you. If you're, a, if you're a family member of a victim, you can hire someone to represent you in court. You can cross-examine the perpetrator yourself if you wish. But none of this is available to Simi because the crime occurred so many years ago. So even though, you know, she should be able to access the documents, she simply isn't able to due to um, how far the crime occurred. So that was, um, that, was a huge, that was a huge obstacle for me in, in the research, actually, because the lawyers I was working with told me to, categorically that the public prosecutor's office would never, under any circumstances, hand over her case file. So I had to find lots of creative ways for her to get it. And you know, create other emotional relationships um, that wouldn't have otherwise existed if not if not for that. So it was very much an interactive process with the research. Um, but eventually, of course, she does get hold of the the trial documents, and she goes from there.
1: I was fascinated by there's a, a sort of irony where you talk in the book in the past where the the forgotten party is you know is a thing, and these things are all mm. there to protect the accused. They're all there to sort of, you know, to to, to ensure that the accused has a fair trial and all of that. And at the same time, you've also got this idea that to be a defence lawyer in Japan is somewhat shameful, because it's almost assumed that if a person has got that far to be on trial, then they must be guilty.
0: Oh, absolutely. There's a 99.9% conviction rate. So Prosecutors will actually only bring a case to trial if they're pretty sure they're going to win it. So this creates, as you as you very rightly say, it's bias of perception, you know, in that if you're charged, you're almost certainly guilty. Um, I think what's really, really interesting, and um, we we're talking about differences between the Japanese law and, and um, say, you know, Western approaches, is that the role of a defence lawyer is... It's much less adversarial. You know, they don't, they're not really there to prove their client's innocence, but more to negotiate the best sentence, the best route to rehabilitation. And also um, a lot of the defense attorneys that I worked with, their jobs have an incredibly psychological role in that they will speak to the victim's families and they can offer a judan, which is a financial settlement, almost to right the wrongs (laughs) that have been done. And sometimes these can be accepted in exchange for a more lenient sentence. But, you know, a lot of their work focuses on making things better, if not right, and uh, helping all parties move forward. So it's less sort of combative and about winning, you know, say if you... I, I have, of course, um, American courtroom dramas in mind <laughs> when I say this, um, and, even, and even British ones. So it's quite, it's quite interesting, that aspect of it. That was, that's fascinating.
1: Let's talk about Rina for a bit then. So Sumiko's mother, Yoshi's daughter, and the, the wife of Asami Satu when we, when we first meet her. So as you said, yeah. she is a photographer.
0: Okay, um, so yes, I was really, really drawn to Japanese photographers of that era and actually I I was primarily drawn to them by their essays. Um, and there's a really interesting contrast, I think, in that with a lot of Western photography and that Japanese photographers write these extraordinarily beautiful, very personal essays that they connect with their work. And um, these are incredibly intimate and very revealing. You know, they'll talk about the suicides of their spouses or, um, you know, the breakdowns of their marriages. And um, I was very drawn in particular to Masahisa Fukase and and his work particularly on ravens and Tokyo is completely riddled with ravens there everywhere so they were a fantastic symbol. And Rina, she's quite controversial in that you know, it's her father wanted her to be a lawyer. She drops out of law school and she really is an artist and she wants to try and make it on her own. But, you know, financially making it on your own as an artist is a, is a very difficult thing, which she finds. And she comes under tremendous social pressure, I think, from her father and everyone else to do the proper thing and conform and get married and, uh, you know, support her husband's career. And this, I think when we first meet her, She's right in the middle of this situation that um, that she and you know she caves and, and does go into that, but she blames herself for it. So she's in this situation where where there is a depression and certainly a disintegration of the self. She's no longer photographing, she's consumed by Sato's career. Um, their life together, her responsibilities, her daughter, and I was really interested in looking at female endurance in this point, you know, at this point, in that what would it take for her? Because she's very, she very traditional in many ways, and very responsible and very dutiful and honourable. So what would it, what would it take for such a woman to break her marriage vows and even contemplate an affair? Because it, it's not enough that you know she's married the wrong guy, or that she doesn't like love him, or that he's not a very nice man. It would have to be something more than that, because there is a child at stake. And so um, I was also looking at this disintegration of the self, which is when we encounter her and she meets Kaitaro, who is at heart also a photographer, also an artist, and has a sort of day job um, attached to a private detective agency. As a Wakare Seseo, of course, he tells her that he's just a private detective. And they really bond over photography. And I think they find themselves again. And she's reborn and rejuvenated. Through the art form, which is very, very important to her, and, and that was—it was also a gift to a novelist actually—to have an art form like that through which to portray a love story and a relationship because it's incredibly intimate and visual and beautiful, and you can do so many things with it. So that's that's really where their love story begins.
1: So Kai, let's finish off talking about Kai. <laughs> so he, as you said, is the uh, well, he's, he's he has a you know a rather troubled background. Um yeah. with in relationship with his parents. And um and he yeah, he fulfills this role of the the Wakara Saseya. So yeah, tell us about that, that thing, that you know, that job in you know, in Japanese society.
0: Well, yes, it's it's a fascinating role. Um it, you know I think a lot of workers say agents are attached to private detective agencies and you know, their work can um, it can be very much like a private detectives so, you know traditional following people, stakeouts, research, that kind of thing. but um, you know they also there's just a whole range of things that they can do. They can prize daughters away from unsuitable suitors or you know if a company wishes to fire someone they can provide shaming material that might induce them to resign and then they can also you know sometimes wives will hire them to uh, dispose of their husbands mistresses (laughs) there's there's just a huge range of things that they offer but for Kai um as you say he grows up he grows up in Hokkaido and he comes from quite a troubled background. Um, and again, you know, his parents have very strong views about the life they want him to lead and the professions that they want him to pursue. And he doesn't really want to do any of this. So he moves from Hokkaido to Tokyo and finds it very hard to, to live there um, naturally. And, and so he he gets drawn into this, um, this agenting role. And, you know, initially... Initially, it's new and exciting, but, but eventually, you know, it, it really pales. And I, I was fascinated t- to look into, you know, what that industry would do to an individual, what it would do to a person. I think by the time he he meets Rena, um, it really has taken its toll on him. And he sees this, you know, fascinating younger woman who, like him, is trapped in many ways. And there's a breaking point for him there.
1: To finish off, can I get you to read us a
0: bit? So I'm going to read you, I think, two small sections. So I mentioned earlier that um, love plays quite an important role in the law. Um, So this is um, Simica. She's gotten hold of the case files and she's just ruminating on that. Our judicial process revolves around the issue of motive. Who, how, where, when are not as important as why. The desires that dwell in the deepest parts of the mind must be examined and proven before a sentence can be determined. Even in the most brutal of murders, the emotional state of the suspect comes to the fore. The notion of love is considered. Hatsukoi, first love. Miren, lingering attachment. Katamoi, one-sided longing. Ashiao, mutual love. Fukai-ajo, deep love. The court will evaluate the depths of love and proffer leniency accordingly. And so it is on this intangible value that a person's fate can rest. Love, which for so many is a matter of life and death. And then the second part is about photography. And this is Rena and Kai during their relationship. Rena rested her cheek in her palm. She treasured these moments in the quiet of the night a recent gift for them, the chance of spending an evening together. In the past months, whenever they had been apart, Rena had imagined herself in this apartment, imagined that the small studio was her home, that her photographs clipped to the walls belonged there, and that the world contained only this man, and this desk, and this bed. Now the fantasy had spread into reality, and it would include her whole life, her daughter, once they found a bigger place, and soon they would they could be a family then Sumi would be with her always and none of them need ever be apart she looked again at the photograph in front of her it was an experiment part of a new sequence she was planning on intimacy the layers between public and private life the shot had been taken in this apartment the camera propped up on the very desk she sat at now she had pointed the lens towards the bed and set the timer to take the shot then she'd sat next to Kaitaro who was facing away from her, wrapped in a cocoon of sheets. She was still watching him when he turned towards her, and his arm curled around her waist as he wor- rolled over in the bed. Rena looked up then, just as the shutter clicked, freezing them. She, looking straight at the camera, her eyes large and dark, the freckles on her nose standing out in stark relief and flickering over her cheeks. Kaitaro blurred, relaxed in sleep, his arm curving around her waist. Rina loved what she had captured in this picture, the unguardedness of it. There was something predatory about it too, which thrilled her. Her gaze staring at the lens, capturing him unknowing in sleep. She also loved that even in his, this state, he was possessive, his hand grasping hers, his other arm curled around her waist. For they were both of the same mind, intertwined, each of them wearing the hint of a smile.
1: So I've been talking to Stephanie Scott. We've been talking about her debut novel, What's Left of Me Is Yours, which is out in the UK in paperback from Weedentild and Nicholson. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank
0: you so much, Neil.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.